take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19 are what we are looking at today. John 17, 6 through 19. There are three areas that a disciple of Christ must get right. And there are any number of things that we need to do correctly, properly, etc., etc. But three relationships, and that's really what we're talking about today. Three relationships that a disciple of Jesus has to get right. Uh, the relationship to God, the relationship to other believers, and the relationship to an unbelieving world. Uh, our, our, our vertical relationship with God, we, we've got to have that accurate. We've got to have that correct. We've got to, we've got to be constantly working on that. But it's, it, that's not the, it's not where it stops. We have got to, as a family of believers, be constantly working on that relationship. We've got to get that right, too. And we're going to talk about some reasons why here in a few minutes. But we also, as Christians, have to be concerned about and working on our relationship with an unbelieving world. Because while we are saved to relationship with God, and we're saved into a family of believers, we are saved for a purpose, and that is to reach the unbelieving world with the gospel. So we have to be able to connect with that unbelieving world and be uh, working on that relationship. In this passage, in John 17, 6 through 19, Jesus prayed for all three of these things. He prayed for our uh, relationship with God, he prayed for our relationship with each other as believers, and he prayed for our relationship with an unbelieving world. Read John 17, 6 through 10, or rather 6 through 19 with me. It says, I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you, because the words that you gave me, I have given them. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have, be have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the words so that they may have my joy completed in them. Verse 14, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so they also may be sanctified by the truth. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that your son prayed for us. He prayed for us as disciples. As we see here, he prayed for us as a church, as we'll see later.
God, thank you that your word is truth, that your word speaks to us today, your word guides us today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth, prays for us when we can't pray for ourselves. God, we thank you for your son that died on the cross for our salvation. We thank you that we can know you intimately as children, adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus because of the work of grace on the cross. Lord, as we open your word this morning, as we study it, as we uh, hear the word spoken, may it permeate our hearts, may it change us from the inside out. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning, today's sermon is about, at least in part, but probably at least two-thirds, at least half, but maybe actually two-thirds, about church unity. Now, there are some of you who are thinking, "Uh uh-huh, Michael did this on purpose. He chose to preach this passage at this time in our church because of the vote that's coming up next week. So, what if I did? That's uh, That's my job, is to preach where the church is. But, It's cooler than that. I want to tell you how we got to this passage today. And so you can see, this is not part of the sermon. I I don't have any notes on this. This is just me thinking through it in the last couple of days. Let me tell you how we got here. When I came in August, I began a series called Living Called Out. And this is a continuation of that series. This, This overarching, really not a series, it's a theme that we're going to be in for some time. In August, we began in Genesis. I'm using a book as a guide uh, called, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it's about the theology of the church, and it begins in Genesis. That's why we began in Genesis, and we looked as, as at the called out people in the Old Testament. And then, uh, I, at using that as a guide, we got done with the Old Testament, we hit Matthew, we hit Mark, uh, well, we kind of skipped Mark because it, Matthew covered it. We talked about Luke, and then we got to John. But in the meantime, if you remember, there were a couple of messages on Thanksgiving. Uh, We had a Christmas series. So we didn't actually begin John until January. That's when we started John, John 10, first of all. And uh, I think we we went through uh, four or five Sundays on John 10. Then we had three or four Sundays on John 15. And then we got to John 17. in the meantime, we uh, had Jordan preach in view of a call, and that was when I was planning back in August, and even planning John in January or December. Uh, I had no idea that was going to happen to to interrupt my flow. Uh, Dr. Brewer came and preached one Sunday, I think in February, from Louisiana College. Uh, I didn't know that was going to happen when I was planning this. And then I certainly didn't know back in January that the personnel committee was going to have someone to present for for minister to families at this time. And yet, and yet, look at what passage we're on at this time in the life of our church. Now, if you think I'm good enough to have orchestrated all of that, thank you. I appreciate the high regard with which you hold my abilities, but let me tell you, this was God doing this. This was God. Uh, can somebody step out the back door right there and flip on those lights that are in the balcony so we can actually see better? It still seems kind of dark in here. Um, so this is where we are now, John 17, 6 through 19. Jesus is praying for his disciples, praying for the, the, the people of his church. 
Uh, that didn't get it, guy. It's the other switch. <laughs> try, yeah, try the other. Try them all. There it was. Oh, it went away. Do it again. Oh, we've got two people doing it. There we go. Now we can. Now I can see a little bit better. I don't know about y'all, but it, it feels better to me. So Jesus here is praying specifically for uh, disciples. It is specifically about the disciples. He is. He, he's looking up in verse six. We can kind of even. Uh, Imagine him uh, looking at him as he's praying because the, he's right, the disciples are right there in the room with him. Verse 6, I've real, revealed your name to the people you gave me. I, I see him motioning. Verse 9, I, I see him nodding his head toward them. God, I pray for them. I mean, right there in the room with him. There's no doubt who he's praying for and who this prayer is about. It's about the disciples, but it's applicable to us because of our status as disciples. We are disciples. That's why we can take our, our, our status today and, and look at this scripture and see how Jesus is actually praying for us. Now, 6 through 19, he's praying with a very narrowed focus of and on individuals, particularly about their, their interpersonal relationships. First, their relationship with God, but then the individual interpersonal relationships within the church and the individual interpersonal relationships outside the church with, with the world, with unbelievers. 20 through 26, which is where we say Jesus was praying for the church, is, is prayed with this broad view of the global mission. So less, less selective Less, uh, not as individualistic in its prayers, but more with a, a step back, praying for the church and how the church is on mission for the world. So he covers, he really covers us twice, but here we need to, at this place, we need to hear this with the, the ears of the individual hearing Jesus saying, you, I'm talking to you personally. That's what we need to hear as we go through this. As I said, Jesus is praying for three different aspects of our relationship. First, our relationship with God. Secondly, our relationship, uh, our relationship to God, our relationship to believers. Secondly, and then thirdly, our relationship to unbelievers. First, our relationship to God. That's the first thing he prays for. Verses uh, 6 through 10 would be where he really covers that. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. See, in this group of scriptures, in these first three scriptures here in, in, in uh, this section, Jesus is covering the fact that God is fully revealed in him, in Jesus. We, we talked about this a good bit last week and how the cross reveals the characteristics of God. If we don't understand God from the Old Testament, we don't understand God from uh, the writings of Paul, uh, we look at the cross and we get the best picture of who God is. We, we see his, we talked about, we saw his wrath, we saw his justice, we saw his mercy and his grace, we saw his love, all of that is on display perfectly in the cross. Jesus reiterates here one more time, we only know God through Jesus. There's no other way. 
You may know about God. You may have some perspective on God. You can even read Scripture and, and get an idea about God. But you only truly know God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I used, I believe, last week an example of a, a professor at LSU that I had, an Old Testament professor who, who knew the Bible. He knew about God. He didn't believe much of anything he read about God, but he knew about God. He did not know God because he did not know the Savior whom God sent. That is the only way we can truly know God. Scripture, pre and post Jesus, really presents a partial picture. That's not to say we ignore it. It's certainly not. We, we, we believe in the authority, the inerrancy of the entire word of God from Genesis to, to the end of Revelation. That is all God's word. But the, where it doesn't speak of Jesus, it is only presenting a partial picture. The Old Testament authors didn't fully understand who God was because they had not seen the Messiah. They, they saw him in the future, they, they understood a little about what was coming. We see that in uh, Hebrews, where uh, the author there talks about how they saw and, and, and lived on the promise of what was coming. They, they understood some, but they did not have a full grasp of who God was. Paul, in all of his writings, he presents a, a very in-depth, uh, systematic theology in a lot of places of who Christ is and and how the church should function, and a number of other things that Paul discusses. But if we just stay with Paul's writings, we miss part of the picture of who God is. We only get the perfect picture of God when we look at Christ. Now, we also know that Christ, as presented in the Gospels, is perfectly presented. We don't have to wonder, oh, did we really get who Jesus is when we read the Bible? Yes, we absolutely do, because this is God's inerrant, authoritative, infallible word. So when I go to the Gospels to learn who Jesus is, I can trust that the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are giving me an accurate picture. I don't come away saying, mm, well, I wonder if that's the real Jesus. No, I come away knowing that is the Jesus whom I worship. That is the Jesus by whom I am saved. No other doubts, no other concerns. We see God in the Gospels because we see Jesus as the truest representation of who God is. God is fully known, is what he's saying in this prayer. Verses 9 through 10, the first part of 10, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I'm glorified in them. Y'all... Is it any wonder that the guy I talked about last week preached 45 sermons on this one chapter, chapter 17, or the other fellow wrote 500 pages of, of uh, exposition on this? We, we could spend sermon after sermon after sermon breaking this down, and uh, we're not. We're, we've got to pull out some, some high points here. So we're not going to get into uh, the whole, it, we're his, and, and we've always been his, and all that that uh, entails in it. What we are going to see in verses 9 and 10 is that we must live like we're God's. We must live like we are his possession. God is fully revealed through Jesus. We see who God is through Jesus, and then Jesus says, and everything that is mine is God's. And now we are into this whole God and Jesus are the same, where he's, he's 
claiming messiahship once again he's he's claiming not just to be the son of god but to be god another sermon that we're not going to spend time on today but we must live like we're gods if we are his then why aren't we acting like we're his if we are his possession if he owns us why aren't we doing what he tells us to do we've got to live like we are his interesting uh phrase here in verse 9 um, I pray for them I'm not praying for the world well, that's not nice of you Jesus why don't you pray for the world we can't come away from this thinking that he doesn't care about the world because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son Jesus died for the world what's Jesus saying here what he's saying here is at this point in this prayer, in the company of these disciples, that there is no need to pray for the world because he knows that the responsibility of salvation for the world lies on the shoulders of the disciples for whom he is now praying. See, he's not praying for the world because if the disciples do what they're supposed to, if the disciples live like they belong to God, the world's going to hear the message of Christ. If the disciples are living up to this prayer, then the world will hear. At this point, it is not that, God, I pray that you would save the world, though that would be Jesus' prayer. His prayer here is, God, I pray for these disciples, these that will be taking the message to the world, that you'll protect them, that you will be with them, that they will know throughout this time of responsibility throughout their lives of dedication to you that they have but one task and that they are cared for by your hand we can go to the world with the gospel because we are his we can go to the world we can go to places where we will be killed for our faith because we're his possession because it doesn't matter the the jar does not get to choose the the task it is prepared for the jar merely does what the jar is supposed to do. The Christian does not get to choose the task for which it is prepared. Our task is simply to do what we are commanded to do. So we go into the world knowing that we have to live like we're his possession, not like what we are our own possession. And in the last section there of uh, verse 10, Jesus says... Uh, I am glorified in them. We talked about this last week because he covered this in that first passage, that first section as well. But I'll hit on it just briefly. We glorify Jesus and show him to the world. We are most glorified in Jesus. He is most glorified in us when we share him with the world. When we back it up a passage live like we are gods when we back it up a few verses are fully revealing jesus in our lives showing people who god is because of who jesus is because of who jesus is in us we glorify jesus we are most he is most glorified in us when we share him with others he is also most glorified by us when we share him with others it is great that you have sin in your life 
don't cut me off right there because that's not where I want you to stop. It is great that you have sin in your life that you want to take care of, that you want to move past, that you want to get beyond. And you should because we must live like we're gods, right? But that is not how you most greatly, most uh, uniquely, most wonderfully glorify Jesus. Being sin-free is not how you glorify Jesus. Sharing Jesus is how you glorify Jesus. That's what he wants from you. You know, you know St. Francis of Assisi said, according to the internet, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. There are a lot of Greek words we can use for, for what that is. Um, Skubalon is the, the Greek word for dung. Uh, it's what uh, Paul says, our filthy rags, our works are skubalon to God. Well, that phrase, number one, a sissy never said it. Number two, it's skubalon just because nowhere does the Bible say let your uh, evangelism be your actions. Our evangelism is our words. You don't evangelize people by being good. You don't evangelize people by acting a certain way. You don't evangelize people by voting Republican. Uh-oh. You don't evangelize people by the stuff you do. You evangelize people by the words you use, and the words that you use are the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how you evangelize people. So when we glorify Jesus, we are, uh, Jesus is most glorified, rather, in us and by us. When we look like him, and when we share him with the world. That's the first thing Jesus prayed for. He prayed for our relationship with God. He also prayed about our relationship to other believers. Verses 11 through 13 cover that. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. We are to be one in verse 11. And if we're not sure what that means, he says, we are to be one in the same manner, in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one. Perfectly one. Perfect relationship of mutual love, mutual support, mutual... Uh, come up with your own adjective. Uh, that is, or noun, that is the kind of relationship we have with each other. That is a high, high calling. It's, it's, not, it's not, okay, now exactly what does he mean here? i got to put up with people? Does Jesus put up with God? Does it mean I have to talk to people even though I don't like them? Does Jesus talk to God even though he doesn't like him? I mean, any, any way you would describe your relationship with other believers, if you can't use that same descriptor to, decide, to describe the relationship between Jesus and God, you're not doing it right. It ain't easy. Jesus' prayer for protection here is not against persecution or trials. Funny. I wish he'd have prayed that, but he didn't. The prayer for protection is against disunity. God protect them 
from themselves. Protect them against disunity. Now, this is not necessarily, he's not talking about uh, disagreement. We can disagree. The disciples disagreed. The disciples, they fought. Peter, we read in the New Testament, had to be called out by Paul. Over and over, there were disagreements because we are human. But disagreement never led to division and disunity. Now, somebody, one of my smart scholars in here is going to say, yeah, but what about when uh, Paul kicked out John Mark and, and took uh, Barnabas, and, I mean, took Silas and Barnabas and Mark went one way and Paul and Silas went the other? Very good. But what happened with them? First of all, the mission was increased. But second of all, we see toward the end of Paul's life, he uh, praises Mark. There was, uh, there was restitution. There, that's not a good word. There was a coming together, restoration. That's the word I was trying to get. Uh, there was restoration in that fellowship, in that relationship. The disunity was very sinful. The, the result, God used it to do something great, certainly, but the disunity over this disagreement was never right. We can have disagreement without division. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan pastor in uh, England in the 1640s, said this, For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. We should expect the wolves to come into our fellowship and worry the lambs. We should expect trials and persecutions to come in and take some of our, try to take some of our sheep, try to cause problems. But for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. We will have disagreements, but disagreements must be based on Scripture and the Holy Spirit, not preferences and personalities. If your disagreement with a brother or a sister cannot be defended by Scripture, shut up! If your disagreement cannot be defended by the Holy Spirit leading you to truth, hush our disagreements and disunity. We may come to Scripture and say, I don't see it that way, and that's fine, and we can have that discussion. But if we are doing it out of preferences and personality to stir up trouble, to backbite, and to cause problems, then you are the problem. I am the problem, if that's my purpose. So we look at Scripture and we see that it, we have to come together and say what is most important is our unity for the gospel, our unity for the mission, our unity for the vision of Christ. The second point we see here, though, is that our unity is built on the personality and character of God, not of ourselves. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. See, we are guarded by the name of God, the name that God has given Jesus, the power we don't even know exactly what name he's talking about. Is he talking about Yahweh? Is he talking about I am? Is he talking about Jesus? We don't know. What we do know is that in the Bible, names carried power. So he is guard, we are guarded by his power. The point, we don't look to each other to unify. 
I don't look to you. You don't look to me. You don't look across and say, oh, I need to fix this with you and that. Yes, we do. The Bible clearly says that we come together and we repent and we, 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 uh, we hash out our differences and we build on that relationship. Yes, but we uh, base our unity not on our own personality and character. We base our unity on the personality and character of God. We don't look to each other to unify. We look to God to unify. What does it mean? A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, tuning fork, you know what that is, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Do you get the image? You never, my, 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 my orchestra people, you never tune to each other. You, you don't start on one with the first instrument and tune that instrument to the next one. And then that one tunes the next instrument, and that one, and that one, and so on. Because what you get is, nah, it just starts dropping, or it goes up, and you have horrible sounds. But if they all tune to the one, happens in orchestras, go to a, go to a symphony. Tap, 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 tap. What happens? First violin plays that note. And then the entire orchestra tunes off that one instrument, that one violin. Why? Because they know if we try to tune to each other, if we try to unify based on each other, we will fail and it will sound horrible. But if we are tuning ourselves to the one instrument, to the master instrument, to the one that is always in tune, if we try as a church to unify ourselves based on the character and personality of God, we will be unified because we're not looking at each other. We're looking at God. And then verse 13 tells us that joy is found in unity. I'm coming to you, Jesus says, uh, to God. I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. We talked about his joy being completed in chapter 15. Jesus' joy was abundance, uh, or was obedience, sacrifice, and love. Our joy in Jesus is also to be obedient, sacrificial, and loving. We cannot be divided, church, and fulfill the purpose and mission of our church. It will not happen. Jesus' joy will not be complete in a divided church. It will never happen. And the completion of his joy is obedience, sacrifice, and love. We will not have obedience, sacrifice, and love in a divided church. It will not happen, no matter how hard we try to make it work. The third thing Jesus prayed about was our relationship to the world. Verses 14 through, really all the way through 19. But primarily this morning, we're going to look at 14 through 16. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I'll keep reading. Sanctify them by the truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified in the tr by the truth. Jesus knew our relationship with the world was not going to be easy. Beyond that, he knew our relationship with the world most of the time was not going to be good, especially as it relates to the world's view of us. The world will hate us, he says in verse 14. I mean, does that sound like a party? Does that sound like something we're going to sign up for? Hey, could, would you like to sign up for my group? Sure, what do I get out of it? Oh, complete hatred from everybody you know. Oh, yay. No. But thank God Jesus was honest with us. Oh, that's not what we do. Oh, come join our church and everything will be fine. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Come, come give money to our church and you'll get rich. Why don't preach those things? Because they're lies. What I preach is what Jesus said. The world will hate us. Uh, a particular preacher in Houston that smiles a lot said on CNN one night, he was asked by, uh, oh, what was the guy in the suspenders on CNN? Larry King, thank you. Uh, asked by Larry King why he didn't preach on sin. His response was, Larry, I just think there's enough negativity in the world without bringing it into the church. Well, I'll agree with there's a lot of negativity in the church. But sin's the a problem. <laughs> and church is where the problem gets fixed. Well, I think Jesus is, is, is on to... He, he, the, the, the smiling preacher almost got it right in, in some sense. I would put it this way, though. The world is going to hate us. Jesus says it. You're going to have problems. You're going to have persecutions. Let me ask you this. Isn't there enough anger and hatred from the world without us turning against each other in the church? Maybe I'll phrase it that way. Maybe I think that's, if he had said that, I'd have been all like, oh, that's a good job, man. I like that. But, but that's what Jesus is saying. Well, Y'all, the world is going to hate you. So be unified. Because you've got to first live through that, make it through that. But secondly, you've got to turn around and evangelize those people. You've got to love the people that will hate you. If you're the one-man band, if you're the lone ranger in this, it's not going to work. Be a unified church. The world is never going to accept us, by the way. It really doesn't matter how, what we do. Whether we fight worship wars, whether we fight sanctuary-style wars, whether, whether the preacher wears a suit or jeans, all those things, those, the world will never accept us. The world will never accept Christians. The world will never accept the church. Now, we do things to try to make people more comfortable, try to get them in when they're, when they're looking, when they've got questions. We don't, want to, we don't want any barrier between them and the gospel that we create for whatever reason. But we're still not going to make the world like us, ever. I mean, you've got, you've got non-Christian friends. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the world will always hate the church. There will always be that animosity because we are enemies. We're on the side of light and goodness, and they are on the side of the devil. I mean, it's just that stark and that's pl that, that plain. We hold to an exclusivity that says if you do not believe the way we believe, 
you are going to hell. If you do not trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you do not believe that He is the only road to God, not many paths, but one God. There are one path. There are many paths to hell, but there's only one path to heaven. Why wouldn't the world hate us? Well, let's not give them any more reason. Let's not live up to our uh, the, the view of all those Baptists to do is fight. I believe I've told you before, someone talking not about the church, not about Baptist churches in general, but talking about our church. I'm not joining that church. Y'all fight too much. That person was a Baptist. If that's what a Baptist believer sees, what does the world see? They already hate us. Let's not bring that hatred in, and let's not give them any more reasons. The world will never accept us, so we don't need to try to look like them. The next passage, verses 15 through 16, the ultimate in the world, not of the world statement. I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Well, what are we doing here? Well, we must have a job. There must be something we are supposed to do. We are in the world, but we are not supposed to assimilate to the world beyond, the, uh, beyond our ability to reach people, or beyond our opportunities to reach people. What do you mean by that? Jesus, Paul said, I, I, I will be all things to all people so that uh, by any means some might come to Christ. Well, that didn't mean he was going to compromise the message. I'm, 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 let me look real quick. Nope, Paul never compromised the message. But his methods, he was one thing in the synagogues. He was another thing on Mars Hill in Athens. He was something else when he would visit the riverside where Lydia got saved, I believe, in... Uh, Thessalonica, if I'm not off on my history. Uh, he, was, he was something different to everybody. But the message was the same. The gospel never changed. He did not assimilate the church to look like the world. And some of y'all are thinking, then why are you wearing jeans, Michael? Because that's not a gospel issue. This does not weaken the gospel. The fact that I'm wearing dim, denim instead of wool doesn't weaken the gospel. The fact that all, not all the men in here don't have on ties does not weaken the gospel. What weakens the gospel is when I stand up here, if I were to stand up here, or to go on a nationally syndicated news program and say, I don't talk about sin because there's enough negativity in the world. That weakens the gospel. But what you wear and what I wear doesn't. Chandeliers versus can lights doesn't weaken the gospel. Pews versus chairs doesn't weaken the gospel. Praise music, contemporary music versus old music doesn't weaken the gospel. What weakens the gospel is when the church looks just like the world because we fight and we bigger, bicker and we have no unity. That's what weakens the gospel. What weakens the gospel? You and me. We weaken the gospel. So we are not to assimilate, but nor are we to isolate. We cannot come inside our walls and say, oh, that's the bad stuff out there and all the good stuff is in here. Because as I've told you before, look around. The bad stuff came with you. Look inside you. The bad stuff came with you. 
The only difference between us and the world is we're saved and they're not. The only difference between us and the world is that we have the gospel and they don't. That should break our hearts. We should immediately cry because we have what they need and yet we might want to come in here and be isolated. And that is not our call. We are in the world and therefore God, uh, Jesus' prayer for us is that we would be in the world and take the message of the gospel to the world but not be affected by the world, not be brought down by the world, not be brought low by the world, but instead see the hurt and the pain and have our hearts broken by the world and figure out every possible way that we can be in the world taking the gospel to the world. That is our calling. In verses 17 through 19, Jesus wraps it up. And he says that we are sanctified. Another word, that word can be translated two different ways. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus says. We, sanctify can mean made holy or set apart. Now it carries with it kind of the same feeling when you just look at them side by side. But we are to be made holy. We are to be made perfect. We are to be sanctified, growing in our salvation. Better every day is the plan, and, and that's the way it should be working. But more than that, we should be set apart. We should be different from the world. We should show unity in diversity, unity in disagreements. That's the church that has to present its face to the world in order that by any means we may save some. So be holy, be sanctified, be made perfect, be set apart, be different. Make sure there's something about you that is different from the world. You will be waiting a thousand years for somebody to come up to you and say, wait a minute. There's something different about you. Do you have Jesus or something? It just doesn't work that way. What it does work, though, what, what does work, though, is when you tell somebody about Jesus and they can confirm what you are telling them about Jesus by what they already know about you. Notice the difference? They didn't come to you and ask because you were different. When you went and told them, they said, well, that makes sense because I see something huge difference between the two. So we are set apart. We are set apart. Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, I send them into the world with the truth. He's saying, we are sanctified with it, meaning we are to take that truth into the world, the truth that only Jesus can save them from their sins. And we are sanctified by it. The only thing that saves us is Jesus. See how those two things work together? We know the truth, and we take the truth, and that truth is Jesus' word to be shared. The evan evangelism is not inviting people to church. Please invite people to church. But that's not evangelism. Evangelism is not saying God bless you at the drive-thru. Feel free to say God bless you. Be a witness in whatever way you can, but that is not evangelism. I've already established the fact that evangelism is not acting a certain way around people act a certain way around people. I'm not saying don't do that, but that's not evangelism. The word, sharing the word, the truth, the gospel, that is evangelism. That is how people are made holy. This morning, maybe you need to be made holy, sanctified, set apart. You can't make yourself holy. 
Yeah, I, I, how many of you ladies, I'm going to pick on you men, I'm going to pick on the ladies, uh, mainly because men, if I ask you this question, you're not going to answer it honestly anyway. Um, how many of you ladies, when you want a makeover, new hair, new outfit, how many of you would just kind of look at yourself in the mirror and say, hmm, I'm going to do this and this and this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make over myself. Uh, yeah, that looks good. Oh, yeah, that eyeshadow all the way up to my forehead. That looks that's nice. Um, you know, I don't have enough lipstick on. Let's put it, you know, let's go Joker style here and put it all the way up my cheek. You know, how many of you do that? Ladies? Yeah, zero. Don't raise your hand. You go to somebody, right? You go to a hairstylist to, to do the hair. Maybe you go to, uh, you, you drive all the way to Houston. You go to, like, Galleria uh, to, to one of the department stores there. To, to, get, to buy clothes. You don't buy them here in Lake Charles, no. You, you go to Houston to get the clothes. Uh, you, know, you, you drive a long way. You, you, you trust other people's expertise because you don't want to look like the Joker wearing pajamas. Well, folks, when we try to save ourselves, when we try to fix our lives, when we try to make ourselves holy, you end up looking like the Joker wearing pajamas. You look... Uh, it just doesn't work. If you want to be made holy this morning, you need to trust the one and only that can save you. The one and only that can make you holy. Jesus Christ. You need to understand something about yourself first, though. You need to understand, as Romans 3.23 says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you. That's me. We've all sinned. But I can't make myself holy. Look at that. Because every time I stop sinning, I sin again. If you haven't, talk to me. How have you figured it out? And I'll tell you, you haven't. You have sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Okay, so there's a penalty for what I've done. I'm a sinner. Got it. I understand that now. And there's a penalty for it. I, 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 that's, that's my wage. It's what I deserve. And I'm going to get paid. It'll be paid in full someday. But, but I want to be made holy, Michael. How does that work? The gift of God is eternal life. But he's, he's, he's not, he ain't Oprah. You get salvation, and you get salvation, and you get salvation, and you get salvation. Everybody that showed up today gets salvation. That's not the way Jesus works. It is a gift from the very hand of God that you must accept. God proved his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But then, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. You don't get it just because you came and sat in here. We're not even going to trick you this way. Don't reach under your seat. Some of you don't get salvation because it's stuck underneath the pew, and some of you don't. Mm, maybe next week it's not that way. It is a gift that you must receive. But it is for, here's the cool part, everyone in here. We, we, we can't throw it out and you get it, but there's not a one of you that has to leave without it. Salvation can be yours if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved this morning. So my question again is, do you want to be made holy? Do you want to be free? Do you want to be unified with this imperfect, sometimes argumentative, always sinful, occasionally sanctified 
but working for it daily, we hope, body of believers. Well, you can be that. You can have that. You can be a part of that family. But you come to him, come to this family through Jesus, not through church membership. So if you want that, in all of its imperfections, see, we are being made holy. We're being set apart. You come to Jesus this morning, your life's not going to be fixed. Uh, your eternity's fixed. But life is still going to be life. But you will have a guide. You will have a savior. You will have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You have an inheritance someday of everything that Jesus has. That's the promise. That's the hope. That's grace. That's the Jesus that wants to save you this morning. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you that you call us to unity. I thank you that you call us to a purpose. You, you, Jesus, you, you prayed for our relationship with the Father, and I pray we would get that right. In this prayer for our relationship with other believers, I pray that we would get that right. In this prayer for our relationship with the world and our obvious need to take the gospel, I pray that we would get that right. But this morning, Lord, I pray that someone within the sound of my voice who has not trusted you as Savior as of yet, has been wondering how this works. I, I can't save myself. I've tried to be good. Quit trying. Come to Jesus. The only way to be made holy is through the shed blood of the Lamb on the cross. God, thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you provided a way. And I pray for every heart in here, those that have not trusted you as Savior, they would do that today. Those who have trusted you as Savior, but, Lord, need to come to the altar today to repent, to pray, to fill up, to, to, further, uh, to be further sanctified. God, for every one of us who have heard your word, be changed because we have spent time in your word today. That is my prayer for me and everyone else. God, do a great work in this place this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So. That's how you're made holy, but this morning maybe you need to be set apart. Where, you know, the two words, different words are sanctified. You're made holy through the blood of Jesus, but maybe this morning you need to show that. You need to come forward and, 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 and make your decision to follow Jesus public. Be set apart in that way. Maybe you need to be baptized. We won't do that this morning, but we can do it soon. Maybe that's your decision this morning, to be set apart, be different. Maybe you need to come and pray be set apart as someone who is saying, God, I'm not where I need to be, but I want to be closer to you and more like you. The altar is open for you. Maybe you have other decisions. Maybe, maybe you're being called to the ministry or missions, and you need to follow up with that. And you need to say, God, set me apart to be what you've called me to be. Your decision this morning is your decision. I pray that you would make it today. As we stand and as we sing, let's do business with God this morning.